But as we're reading this and as you look at this, this, this is a story. It begins, verse 1, in the beginning. That's how you start a story, isn't it? It introduces us to the characters, the Word, God. It says there's a conflict between dark and lightness, between, in fact, humanity and God. And the climactic solution in the story is the birth of Jesus into human history. Or John's way of saying it, the Word became flesh. Now, saying it in that way is not quite as cute or adorable as saying the baby was wrapped in swaddling cloths and was lying in a manger. That's how Luke says it. We've had a number of babies born in our church family, and when the baby comes and the proud parents are there, nobody says, what is it? It is flesh. You know, that's not the response that is given. But that's how John says it. There's a very different way of telling the Christmas story. And one of the things, I, I love Christmas, and one of the things that happens with Christmas, the things we love about it and the things that I love about it is we sing the same songs. They're very familiar. I love Nat King Cole, one of my favorite Christmas albums. We watch the same movies, right, over and over again. For us in our house, it's Elf or um, Rudolph. We eat the same food, a lot of us. We want to have that same Christmas meal that reminds us of all of our other Christmases. We spend time with the same people, with family and friends. And so that's what's good about it, but it can become, it can become familiar, very cozy, very comfortable, and very nostalgic and warm. And, and that's good. But we lose the shock value of what Christmas is all about if we just think of it in cozy and comfortable terms. And we lose the life-changing impact it should have on us. So John's story of Christmas here that we're going to look at, because it's so different, it can help us regain that wonder and help us step back and go, what is the meaning of Christmas? The language here, as we'll see, is very simple. I was talking to somebody this week and said, if, if you know just a little bit of Greek, if you have like Greek 101, you can, you can kind of translate all of John 1. It's very simple. But the theology in this story is probably the most profound in the whole Bible. John is saying, here's how the birth of Jesus reveals and unlocks the very mysteries of life and gives us insight into what even is ultimate reality. And it gives us, as John tells us, the power to change. Here in this story is the power, if you're not a Christian, to make you a Christian. And if you are a Christian, to renew your faith powerfully during the Christmas season. So that, that's my hope and prayer for us in these next four messages. To start this morning, I want to look at the words, the Word, and just trace those two words throughout John's telling of the story. We're going to look at who the Word is, who is He, where He came from, what He does, and what He became. So first, who He is. Who is the Word? John says, very straightforwardly, the Word is God. This is one of the clearest places in the Bible that teaches the full divinity of Jesus that this baby who was born into the world 
that the man that we know in human history as Jesus Christ is God. He was God when he was born. He was God before he was born. One, one. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the Word who became flesh. There are two parts here. There's the with God part. We'll get to that next, but I want to first focus on the was God part. And think of this. Think about this. If it is true, the Word who became flesh was God. That's hard to wrap our minds around. We probably have some questions about that. Fully God and fully man, how is that possible? One person, two natures, what does that even mean? But if this is true, yes, there is endless mystery. There's endless wonder to this. But there is also a demand here for our full and undivided attention. Who He is, what He says, His Word, then has full authority, then this person, Jesus Christ, is the final Word. He should have our full attention. If Jesus isn't God, if this isn't true, then Jesus might be divinely inspired in some way, created like us. He might be a great prophet or a great teacher. We might have some things to learn from Him. But at the end of the day, His Word is a word among other words. It's like, to share an illustration of this, if you're in a home that has siblings or if you grew up in a home with siblings, if the parent, the mom or dad, sends the brother or sister to the other brother or sister and says, mom or dad says you need to come, the success rate on that is very low, <laughs> maybe like a 5% or something. So inevitably, the other sibling's like, ah, I don't know, I mean, did mom, did mom really say that? Do I really have to come? And then mom comes or dad comes and the authority is in the room and the child listens. If God has come, it makes all the difference in the world, demands our full attention. Now, if, if this is hard for you to accept or to grasp or you struggle with this, and you say, that's hard for the modern mind to believe that God came in the flesh, how can we believe that in the modern world? Just consider this for a moment. Who wrote this story? This is the Gospel of John. John was one of the followers of Jesus, one of His disciples. He was called the beloved disciple. Now, what we know about John is he was a devout Jewish man before he met Jesus. And that's important because the one thing that was most important to a Jewish person of this time, the non-negotiable, the core of cores for the Jewish faith was what? Belief in one God and only one God. The God of the Bible was the only true and real God. They had their confession called the Shema that they repeated and drilled into their kids over and over again. The Lord our God is one, just one God. That would have been at the heart of John's identity, his thinking for a Jewish person to call anyone or anything else God would have been blasphemy of the highest order. And that would have been the hardest possible thing for him to conceive, let alone believe was true. So here's John. He comes right out and he says it, Jesus Christ, this man that I knew, maybe better than any other person 
that knew Jesus. John is called the beloved disciple, one of Jesus' very closest friends. He knew him better than anyone. He says, I have come to believe he is God. And at the very least, we have to step back and go, John, how did you come to believe this? How did you change your entire worldview and thinking? How did you rewire everything? And I think John would say, well, read and decide for yourself. This is his story. If it's true, he demands our full attention. He has full authority. And the Christmas story that John is telling us, this is the application for us, doesn't allow us to just be very comfortable and cozy with just the baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. That's not just the cute picture that we're supposed to go, oh, that is so cute and cozy and warm. This is not like baby Yoda, where we just look at Yoda and go, he's so sweet, look at his eyes, he's so cute. That is not the Christmas story at all. With Jesus, he is either fully God that demanding our full attention, his ultimate truth and ultimate authority, or this is insane. This is nonsense. There's no middle ground. So John says that's who he is. Verse 1 also tells us where he came from. Now, each of the four Gospels, if you read each of the four accounts of the life of Jesus, they start in different places. The Gospel of Mark doesn't tell us about the birth of Jesus at all, interestingly. It's just Jesus bursts on the scene with John the Baptist. You go to Luke. Luke has the longest account of the Christmas story. He starts with the angels. The messengers of God appear to Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and to Mary. And Matthew says, well, I'm going to take it even further back. And he starts with this long genealogy going all the way back to Abraham. But the gospel of John goes way, way back before all of this. In fact, right here, John starts further back than any other place in the entire Bible. Further back than even Genesis 1-1, where in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth. John's saying to understand Christmas, we got to go further back than even that, to where Jesus came from in eternity past. He says, in the beginning was. Before God did anything, what was God's being? This is one of the few glimpses in the Bible that's given to us into the starting point before starting points, the beginning before all beginnings, before God ever even thought of us or creation. What was going on? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, with God. There were a number of prepositions John could have used there for the word that we translate with. That he chose what scholars say is the most intimate preposition possible. Literally, we could translate this as the, the word was toward God, face to face, person to person. Now, how does this work? If I were to tell you, good morning, everyone, let me tell you my story. My name's Eric, and in the beginning was Eric, and Eric was with Amelia. And Eric was Amelia. You would go, that is the most confusing and ridiculous. I don't understand. What are you saying? That is not rational or logical. That makes no sense. This is two different and distinct people. Now, 
What's happening here in John 1, the language is so precise and so careful. It only allows us one interpretation. John does not say, the Word was a God. So there are multiple gods. No. He doesn't say, the Word was the God. And he doesn't say, God was the Word. He says, the Word was God and the Word was with God. Two persons, one God. We know from other places in the Bible that there is a third person, the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. The doctrine of the Trinity, the mystery of the Trinity. This is where Jesus came from. Now, what does that mean? It means He came from eternal communion, relationship with, and delight with God as God. This is the very heart of the universe. This is the ultimate reality behind all other realities, relationship, communion, delight. The ancient church called this perichoresis. comes from two Greek words, around and dance. What is at the heart of reality? What is at the beginning of all beginnings? It's a dancing around in love of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the divine dance of eternity. Now, have you ever thought this? Have you ever thought what was going on before there was anything? Go way, way back and go before there was time. What, what was there? I used to think about this. I remember this as a little child in my bed. Maybe I was a very strange child, but I would have this, this thought pattern going, like, what was before God? What was there? Before anything, what was there? And I would just think of, like, utter nothingness and darkness and blackness, and I would get, like, really freaked out by that and terrified. Like, that's scary to even think about. But if I were to be able to go back in time and talk to myself in the bed, terrified at the thought, I would say, little Eric, <laughs> that is bad theology. Stop being afraid, which is not how you talk to a child who's afraid. I would say ultimate reality is not an impersonal force. It's not a black nothingness, darkness. It's not a God who's all alone by Himself, unable to love or give or delight in another, who is needy for attention, who needed to create to love. Ultimate reality is in the words of the hymn writer Frederick Faber, when heaven and earth were yet unmade, when time was yet unknown, thou in thy bliss and majesty didst live and love alone. The life of eternal bliss and joy in perfect love. This is the starting point. This is the beginning point of Christianity. The very beginning point of the gospel is found here. To understand Jesus, we must start here. God's eternal joy and perfect loving communion and relationship. This is the source and this is the beginning of everything and this is the end and the goal of everything. Now listen, friends, if your view of God doesn't start here and begin here, you will miss what Christmas means. You will miss the very heart and core of the gospel, of what Christianity is at its essence. John says, in the beginning, he was with God. He says it again in verse 2. Repeat it for emphasis. He was in the beginning with God. This is the starting point. 
And what's very important is that preposition, with. He says, he was in the beginning with God, and in him was life. And this life was the light of humanity. What is the life in him that is the light of humanity? It is the eternal joy of perfect loving relationship. Now, let me explain this further. A number of years ago, I, I read a book. I came across this book called With. I just use that preposition, With. It's by an, um, a pastor named Sky Jethani, a great book. And the premise of the book was this. He asked the question, what is the preposition that best describes how you relate to God? Not how you think of God, but how you feel about God, how you relate to Him. For some of us, it's under. We experience life under God. There is a God who is above me. He's distant. He's judgmental. He's condemning. Life is under the gaze of His displeasure. He's always looking down upon me, and I'm under the threat of His judgment under God. For some of us, it's a life over God. God is something to be analyzed and studied and thought about. Maybe God is something that I decide whether or not exists or what He is like or what in His Word is acceptable. To me, it's over God. For some of us, it's a life for God. God is a God who gives me things to do, and so I live for Him. I do these things for Him. For others, it's a life from God, from. God is a God who is there to give me the things I need from Him, the things I want from Him. But what John is saying here, that none of those prepositions will do. The starting point of starting points to understand Christmas is the word with, life with God, the beginning and the end of Christianity. Now, let me move to the third point. Verses 1 and 2, uh, they tell us who the Word is and where He came from, life with God. Look at verse 3. It tells us what the Word does. So, out of, this is how the story goes, right? Out of the eternal joy and loving relationship, in perfection, the Word created all things. If the Word was God and the Word was with God, in bliss and joy and perichoresis and all this, we would ask, why? Why did the Word create anything? Why did He create if He didn't need us? The best answer that I've ever found was given by Susanna Wesley, mother of John Wesley and Charles Wesley, theologians and hymn writers. She said this, God, He is being itself, and as such must necessarily be infinitely happy in the glorious perfections of His nature from everlasting to everlasting. And as He did not create, so neither did He redeem because He needed us, but He loved us because He loved us. What is she saying? That the Word, why did the Word create? The Word created so that we would join the dance with Him in communion and relationship with Him. Join in on this infinite happiness that He knows in Himself because He knows of the love of His Father, to know what it's like to be like Him, to be loved, 
just because He's loved. Now, here's the point. This is what God has been trying to tell us, say to us, show us about Himself from the beginning of the world. This is why Jesus is called the Word. There are a lot of other titles and names for Jesus that He's given in the Bible. He's called Messiah, Savior, Lord. But why the Word? Why does John start with the Word? Well, a person's Word is the clearest way that we know another person. It's the way that a person makes him or herself known, right? If I say to someone, I'll be there at 3, I'll meet you at the coffee shop at 3, and then I don't show up, and the person's like, I'm here at the coffee shop texting me, like, where are you? No, 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 that was my word. That wasn't me. Say, well, no, your word is you. If you say you will be here, then you should be here. You are your word. Or if you ask someone out on a date and you say, I really want to get to know you better, and you go see a movie for the first date, and you say, let's go see a movie again for the second date and the third date, and finally they say, when are we going to talk to each other? I thought you wanted to go on a date with me to get to know me better. The point is, the only way that we know another person is if they reveal themselves through their word, through speaking. To say Jesus is the word means he is God's perfect self-expression. God's full self-disclosure, that is Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says the Son is the exact expression of his nature. John Calvin, when he translated this, he translated the word as the speech. Jesus is the speech. To say Jesus is the word means he is exactly what God wants to tell us. It also means this. He is exactly what God has always been trying to tell us. From the beginning of creation and in us, the life and the light He created us with, the Word has been saying this, God didn't make you to live under Him, under His frown. He definitely didn't make you to live over Him. He is God. He didn't make you to live for Him, to do things for Him. He can do everything Himself. He doesn't need you for that. And He didn't make you to get life from Him because life is in Him. He made you to live life with Him, to know what it's like to be loved because you are loved. Everything else comes from that. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and you just spent a long time explaining something Maybe it's your opinion on something or uh, something that you think. And then after all the explaining, you're very, you're very careful, you're explaining it, and then the person says, so what you're saying is this. And then they get it completely wrong. <laughs> no, that is not what I'm saying at all. That's what's happened between us and God. What we've been hearing from God God in Jesus, the Word, is saying to us, that is not what I've been saying at all. Because at, at the root and the source of, of sin and our separation from God is a distorted view of God's Word, of what He's saying to us, which leads to a distorted view of God's person, of who He is. It goes like this. Let me explain. 
There are two ways that this, this distortion happens, but at the root, they're actually the same. There's the religious distortion. You can call it the religious distortion. It goes like this. God's Word is God telling me what I have to do so that I can earn whatever He's holding back from me. God's holding back something. He hasn't given it to me, so I have to earn it. And His Word tells me how to earn it. This is the religious lie that says if we are good enough, if we're trying hard enough, if we obey enough and do enough, He'll give to us what He's holding back. How do we know if that's, that's in our hearts? What's the sign that we believe that lie? There's, there's two ways it plays out. One is if, if we feel like we're doing enough, we're always trying harder, and we're not getting what we want from God, we become jaded and we become angry, especially when hard things happening and suffering comes in our life. We become jaded, angry with God. Why are you holding back? I've done my part. Or we feel like we can never do enough. We can never get enough. So we despair that we'll never measure up. We think His Word is telling us, if you're good enough, you'll give it to me. That's the religious distortion. But there's another one. We could call it the irreligious distortion. And that is this. God's Word, His Word is what's holding me back. In other words, when God gives us His Word, He's holding me back from the life I want, what He tells me to do, what He tells me about life. It's holding me back from the life that I really want, so I disobey. Now, what I want you to see is at the root, these two things are the same. There's the belief that God is holding back, that He's not good, that He doesn't love me, that He's not a loving person. You see that this is the lie in the garden. Before sin was ever committed, before the, the fruit was pulled off of the tree, what happened? The distortion of God's Word came first, where the serpent came and the first words out of his mouth were, did God really say? Did God really say? He's holding you back. He doesn't love you. He's withholding something from you. That was the root and the lie that preceded all other sin. And this lie has gone so deep in us, there is only one way for God to overcome it. That's where Christmas comes in, that the one who was God and who was with God, the Word became flesh. Why? To undo the lie about the Word of God and the person of God. The Word became flesh. The infinite became finite. The eternal came into time. The indestructible became destructible and vulnerable. The unbreakable, breakable. The invisible became visible. That's what he's saying here. Why? Well, he says in verse 14, to dwell with us. Once and for all, to communicate to us in the most personal way possible as one of us, to tell us. I made you to live with me. And to communicate to someone, the most effective way possible is to communicate to them from the inside, to know them, to know what makes them tick, 
personally. And God, this is saying, knows us from the inside. The, the Word made flesh. That's the most personal and conceivable way that the eternal, personal God could show us. So we look at Jesus, we look at His life and say, His life, is this a God who's holding back from us? Is this a God whose love is earned? The word in the Greek for the, the word word is logos, where we get the word logic. Christmas says that the most compelling logic of Christianity, it's not a reason, it's not an argument or an evidence, it's a person, the Word made flesh. This, He, is the logic that undoes the lie about God and His Word. Word became flesh to dwell with us, and the Word became flesh to die for us. John could have said, the Word became man or the Word became human, but he doesn't say that. He says, the Word became flesh. Flesh is soft and vulnerable. Flesh can be hurt. It's killable. It can die. The Word became flesh not just to dwell with us, but to die for us. What is the one thing that the Word Jesus could do to show us once and for all, I am not holding back. I am not holding back from you. Now, what was the one thing that for Jesus that meant the most to Him at the core of His core? His greatest joy, His greatest treasure was the love of His Father that He had enjoyed from all eternity, His life with the Father. But on the cross, what happened? Jesus experienced life without His Father, life outside of the dance, life outside of that eternal perfect communion when He took on all of our sin in our place. Jesus' prayer before He died, John 17, let's put it up on the screen. He tells us why He became flesh to dwell with us. He says, Father, He's praying to His Father, I want those You have given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory which You have given me because You love me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. Everybody has misinterpreted the word. They have not known you. However, I have known you because I am the word. And they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that, and here it is, the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. Friends, this is the meaning of Christmas. Jesus says, I want them to be with me so that the love that I have had from eternity past of the Father, the love that says, I love you because I love you, may be in them. That's why the Word came to dwell, and that is why the Word became flesh to die. Think about that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
We thank you for giving us this glimpse into eternity past. This glimpse into who you are. This God of great abundance, generosity, and overflowing love and delight. Not a God who's holding back from us. I pray this morning that what we've, what we've heard would sink deep. That it would sink deep and undo the lie that lives in all of our souls that tells us we are not lovable, that we have to earn your love, and that what we want can be found outside of you. Cure us of that lie through the powerful truth of Christmas and the Word made flesh, your Son, our Savior. We pray in His name. Amen. This morning we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and this supper goes by a few different names. We can call it also communion. We call it communion because that's what this is for. Ultimately, that's what happens here at this table. It's why we do it. It's why Jesus gave us this meal for communion, for relationship, to meet with Him, to be with Him. It is communion with God through Jesus, the Word, the Word made flesh. So His body broken, His blood shed. Jesus, the Word, was made flesh to dwell with us and to die for us so that we could experience what this meal is all about, communion with Him. So I don't know what's going through your heart and mind sometimes when you come forward to this meal. Sometimes I know what I'm thinking is, here's what I need from God. Here's what I need to get from God. I need strength. I need endurance. I need hope. I need perspective. And this is a table where all those things happen, but at the core of it, Jesus says, I'm giving you this meal so I can give you myself, so you can be with me, so you can experience again that you are loved because you are loved. And from that communion, if you have that, then you have perspective. If you have that, you can endure. If you have that, you have fresh strength to follow His Word, whatever He's calling you to do. So, who is this meal for? What is this meal for? It's for those who want to meet with the Word, who is God and who is with God. This morning, if you're here and you're still trying to wrap your mind around all of that, who is Jesus? I don't know where I stand with Him. This meal is for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, the Word. If you're not there yet, we don't want to do something that would represent a place where you are not at with Jesus. Instead, we would invite you to use this time to pray and to reflect. Reflect on John 1, the message. There are some prayers for you in the bulletin to guide you in a time of reflection during this time. This morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. Instead of the Apostles' Creed, which we usually say uh, every other week, which reminds us of the great story. Now, we're going to say another creed that reminds us of the story but takes us back into eternity past, the Nicene Creed, which in many ways is the most beautiful expression of a lot of the things that are taught in John 1. 
Would you stand with me? Let's remind each other of this faith, this great story that we believe in, the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. I believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. What a story. Let's give thanks. The prayer of thanksgiving. The Lord be with you. You know, lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Please have a seat. On the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, saying, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and said, This cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. The words of institution. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. A few words of instruction as to how we celebrate communion here at Trinity. We'll form two lines down the center aisle. Take a piece of bread, take a cup, and return to your seats. We'll all share in the bread and the wine together. In the center, in the dark liquid, that's real wine. On the outside of the circle is juice. We also have... um, thought we had our gluten-free bread, but I don't know if we have that this morning. Looking around for confirmation. We do. Oh, sorry. Okay. We will have gluten-free bread uh, for those of you who need that. There it is. Friends, I invite you to commune with the God who made you. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come as you're ready.